recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 20th, 2014. I can't believe how fast this year has gone by. In 10 days, we're looking at the last quarter. That's amazing. Once again, we commence with our presentation of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, written in 1543. The text of Luther's treatise is found in the references section of Christogenia.org. Someday soon I hope to be able to take these notes and annotate that text. That's a, that, that's a project for the, for the future, Yahweh willing, hopefully the near future. This presentation tonight will be from part seven of On the Jews and Their Lives. I know this series may get tedious and a bit repetitious. That may be because Luther is tedious and repetitious. However, I do think this is worth presenting and critiquing, so I pray that all of you bear with me. I've already been asked for CDs on this series. I have a couple of requests asking me for CDs of, of um on the Jews and their lives of my presentation of it. Perhaps I will make a part one CD when I make CDs for the recent Roman series in the coming weeks. Christogenia already has inexpensive CDs available for the Acts and Amos presentations, and once Melissa and I get settled in here in Florida, I will be able to concentrate on making many more of our podcasts available on CD in that same manner. Of course, all of our podcasts are available freely for download. Everything I've ever spoken, written, done is available freely for download, and I praise Yahweh that people find it worthy of download. The um, the CDs aren't really for the people that listen all the time. That's not their intention. I had hoped that the CDs would become a tool for witnessing our Christian identity faith to other people. And they're inexpensive. They're as cheap as I could possibly make them. And and the Act CD, two CD set, I think is um, $7 maybe. And, and Amos is maybe $4 and change or something like that. I can't make them much cheaper than that. And, and buying them, I make a buck or so on a CD. There's no lie. And, and that helps me support my work. But they're cheap and they're easy handouts. And I had hoped that people would find them to be an excellent witnessing tool. And I've already given away quite a few myself. So, so um, I, I do practice what I preach, I pray. In his paper on the Jews and their lies, Martin Luther has made many highly protracted arguments against the Jews and their religious claims. He tends to torture his arguments with sophistry, however, the reasoning of men, rather than seek to refute the Jews with the plain word of God. It is evident from the context of these arguments, that Luther had engaged himself with Jews, 
but did not write this paper for the benefit of Jews. Rather, he wrote it for the benefit of his fellow Christians in order to help them to understand and answer the extant claims of the Jews. Lucas said at the beginning of his paper that there were Jews who were always trying to convert Christians to Judaism. Luther also said that much less do I propose to convert the Jews, for that is impossible. And, and there's a serious, we love Luther, but there's a serious problem here in this, in, in this statement where he goes on to say, those two excellent men, Lyra and Bergensis, together with others, truthfully described the Jews' vile interpretation for us 200 and 100 years ago, respectively. Lyra lived and wrote in the 1300s, Bergensis in the 1400s. Indeed, they refuted it thoroughly. However, this was no help at all to the Jews, and they have grown steadily worse. And, and the sad part about that statement, however, is that Luther either did not know, and this is doubtful, did not know that Lyra and Bergensis were Jews themselves, and we would not understand how he could not have known that, or he believed, as he must have, that they were authentic converts to Christianity, contrary to his own statements that Jews could not be converted. Lyra and Bergensis were converso Jews. Luther quoted, cited their work all the time and, and got a lot of his own biblical understanding from those men. To us, that should be a great fault because the enemies of God can't teach the truth. They can't convert to God. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. If you've come from a family which for 80 generations has lived in actors, then you cannot possibly be good fruit, not according to the measure of Yahweh our God. So far in his treatise, Luther argued against the Jews based on the following precepts. First, Luther argued that the Jews do not have any special status with However, throughout his entire argument of this subject, Luther attacked the scriptures themselves because he wrongly supposed the Jews to be the Israel of God. Serious conflict in Luther's thinking. The scripture fully supports the exclusivity of God's covenant relationship with Israel from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament. And since Luther wrongly believed the Jews to be Israel, he was forced to deny the scripture itself by countering the election of Israel and claiming an election of believers who were not Israel, something which the Bible never promises anywhere. Luther actually argued against the word of God and not against the Jews. Secondly, Luther argued that the Jews do not have any special status with God based upon the circumcision. Luther himself said, and I quote, 
If I were to concede that circumcision is sufficient to make them a people of God, or to sanctify and set them apart before God from all other nations, then the conclusion would have to be this. Whoever was circumcised could not be evil, or could be, nor could be damned. And with this, we must agree, because the ritual is only a symbol of the relationship with God. But the symbol itself is not the substance of the relationship. And therefore, anyone who merely adapts the symbol for themselves cannot justly claim the relationship. Adapting the symbol doesn't make you a seed of Abraham. However, Luther did not understand the substance of the relationship because he could not properly identify the parties of the relationship. Luther argued, thirdly, that the Jews do not have a special relationship with God based upon a keeping of the law. However, Luther, doing that, denied the permanency of the husband-wife relationship of God to Israel, not understanding Isaiah, Hosea, Paul, or Christ himself, all of whom upheld that relationship. Luther, disputing the idea that the Jews could be the people of God, while at the same time upholding the idea that the Jews were Israel, is found again to be disputing against Scripture. Because the false premise that the Jews are Israel by necessity leads to a multitude of lies. When Israel keeps the law, Israel only displays that they are the people of God. And Israel should keep the law because they are his people and not so that they may be his people. They already are his people. They're being punished because they didn't keep the law. Get it? They're still his people in their period of punishment. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquity. Being punished for their iniquity doesn't unmake them the people of God. They're still the people of God. They're still his peculiar possession. The word of God cannot fail. Luther was oblivious to the fact that the entire story of Scripture is that Yahweh would keep Israel in spite of their breaking the law and forsaking God. Just like the circumcision Keeping the law is a display that we love God. But if you're outside of the covenant and decide to keep his law, that does not bring you within the covenant. That does not make you a seed of Abraham. The promise is that Abraham's seed would come from his loins. Fourthly, I think I'm up to four anyway. Fourthly, Luther argued that the scepter-bearer and the lawgiver of the scriptures, and wow, he's still arguing this in part seven to some degree, which was promised to 
always be found in Judah, to never depart from Judah, was now, since the time of the crucifixion, found in Christ. Luther makes the primary mistake here of arguing, first, as if the Jews were Judah. He also insisted on the impossible, that the scepter and lawgiver were in Judah in Judea in the Second Temple period, something which flies in the face of both scripture and historical reality. Luther insisted that the house of David would be everlasting, and that, that insistence is correct because that's the word of God. But Luther was oblivious to the possibility of its, its existence elsewhere besides Jerusalem. And one place it would be promised to be elsewhere was 2 Samuel 7.10. Quoting scripture from 2 Samuel chapter 7, Luther was absolutely blind to the passages such as that found in verse 10, which, upon its examination, should have forced him to reconsider his entire worldview. Luther, as well as all mainstream Christians of today, denominational Christians, neglected to notice that Christ himself denied the scepter at his first advent, promising in the revelation to take it himself at his return. Luther insisted that Christ is the consolation of the Gentiles, as he evidently interpreted Haggai 2.7, where the King James Version has the phrase, desire of all nations. Just like Luther tried to take the word Shiloh in Genesis 49.10 and make it into the Messiah and build a theological doctrine upon that. Luther tried to take this word desire in Haggai 2.7, and, and it's a difficult word, and we'll discuss it as we proceed tonight, and make it the consolation of Luke chapter 2 and, and other scriptures, and insist that it applies to Christ in his first advent. Addressing that, in our last segment of this presentation, or, or in our last presentation of Luther, we demonstrated from both New Testament scripture and Old that Christ was the consolation of Israel, but he was the consolation of Israel alone, and he was the consolation of the nations of Israel, but nobody else. But now we have found something which we neglected last week, that in the passage of Haggai, to which Luther originally referred, in the Hebrew word for desire, which Luther says is consolation, is a singular feminine noun. You can't squeeze it without good reason into befitting a masculine messiah. But in the Greek scripture, in the Septuagint, it is a plural neuter noun. So there was definitely a, a departure of interpretations of this word, a variety of interpretations of this word. In any case, neither form can refer to a singular masculine messiah. Luther began this treatise on the Jews and their lives by stating 
that the Jews have failed to learn any lesson from the terrible distress that has been theirs for over 1,400 years in exile. And that statement alone demonstrates Luther's naive ignorance as to the identity of the Jews, because the exile of the enemies of Christ began in 70 AD, not the exile of the people of God, which had begun six and seven or seven and eight hundred years before Christ. Luther has consistently cited two converso Jews, Nicholas of Lyra, who was, a, who was born a Jew in 1279 AD, and eventually be converted and became a Catholic, and I say converted sarcastically, and became a Catholic and a Franciscan teacher. And the other one, Burgensis, or Paul of Burgos, who was born with the name Solomon Ha Levi at birth, and who was a Talmudic scholar and a rabbi before he converted to be elevated as a, and I say this sarcastically, as a respected scholar in the Catholic Church. This is the first major pitfall and trap in believing that there could possibly be good Jews. And the single biggest mistake that Luther ever made, Luther talked about the ancient true Jews near the beginning of part four of his paper, but failed to acknowledge that modern Jews, the Jews of his time, are neither ancient nor true. Then, by quoting these men, Lyra and Bergensis, who were Jews themselves, regardless of their religious profession, Luther adopted their arguments. Consistently, he adopted their arguments. And therefore, he argued with the Jews on their own terms, because he took it for granted that the Jews were not only Judah, but Israel as well. That's crazy. That flies in the face of all truths. Doing so, he also followed the often convoluted arguments of these converso Jews, which were based mostly upon sophistry and the peculiar Jewish interpretations of the Old Testament. And then, for the most part, and like the Jews also did, Luther ignored the words of Christ and the apostles which rebuked the Jews in the New Testament. And through the first seven parts of Luther's On the Jews in Their Lives, there are very, very few New Testament quotes and very, very many arguments based on matters of prophecy from the Old Testament with peculiar interpretations favoring the lie that the Jews are Israel. In truth, the only interpretation of the Old Testament which is consistent throughout Scripture, including the New Testament and the Old, is the Christian identity interpretation, which Luther did not have providential access to, and which Luther could not understand.
Yet this is the only interpretation by which all history and all scripture can be perfectly harmonized. All those who are without it are at the mercy of the Jews themselves, being forced to consent that the Jews are Israel and that they themselves are lowly Gentiles. So Luther, in his own awakening to the treachery and the evil character of the Jews, which he certainly was very aware of, was forced to argue against Scripture. Christ and the apostles, on the other hand, denied the claims of the Jews while upholding the Scripture. Luther should have followed them rather than following Lyra and Bergensis. Despite all of this, Martin Luther realized that the Jews were an accursed people who would never repent and would therefore ultimately only be destroyed. And he based these conclusions on his own observation of their character. Luther said in part six of his treatise that, therefore, wherever you see a genuine Jew, you may with good conscience cross yourself and bluntly say, there goes a devil incarnate. He demonstrated the correct understanding that Muhammad and Muhammadans were also devils. But he never took the final step in realizing that such character was innate, a circumstance of their birth, that they would always be that way, every single one of them. And he nevertheless had consistently quoted or cited Lyra and Bergensis, the Converso Jews, and held out to the idea that Jews could be converted. With this, we will commence with part seven of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives. From their youth, meaning the Jews, from their youth they have imbibed such venomous hatred against the Goyal from their parents and their rabbis. And they still continuously drink it, the venomous hatred. As Psalm 109.18 declares, it has penetrated flesh and blood, marrow and bone, and has become part and parcel of their nature and their life. And as little as they can change flesh and blood, marrow and bone, so little can they change such pride and envy. It almost seems like Luther understands the genealogical argument, but he goes off the track a few times later on. They must remain and thus perish unless God performs extraordinarily great miracles. If I wish to vex and anger a Jew severely, I would say, listen, Yehudi, do you realize that I am a real brother of all the holy children of Israel and a co-heir in the kingdom of the true Messiah. And, and he almost has, he has that right. He just has it right for the wrong reasons. Without doubt, I would meet with a nasty rebuff. 
if he could stare at me with the eyes of a basilisk, he would surely do it. And all the devils could not execute the evil he would wish me, even if God were to give them leave. Of that I am certain. However, I shall refrain from doing this, and I ask also that no one else do so for Christ's sake. But a Jew's heart and mouth would overflow with the cloudburst of cursing and blaspheming of the name of Jesus Christ and of God the Father. We must conduct ourselves well and not give them cause for this if we can avoid it, just as I must not provoke a madman if I know that he will curse and blaspheme God. Quite apart from this, the Jews hear and see enough in us for which they ever blaspheme and curse the name of Jesus in their hearts, for they really are possessed. <coughs> Excuse me. Luther understood that the people of Christ were indeed the true children of God, but he did not understand that those same original Christians were the true descendants of Jacob Israel, the scattered nations of ancient Israel, that they were genetically, that Christians in Europe were genetically the people of God. Luther did not understand that in spite of Paul's insistence and teaching that this was so, Romans 4, 1 Corinthians 10, Philippians, Colossians, on and on. Neither did Luther understand that the Jews were not Israel. Yet, he saw them as the devils that they really are. Therefore, Luther represents an excellent fulfillment of the admonition regarding the knowing of the trees by their fruits. He was just unable to transfer that knowledge into a correct interpretation of scripture to examine from the text from the bible from ezekiel 34 and 35 from romans chapter 9 from the histories of josephus he was unable to discover the real identity of those who say they are judah and are not he fell short of that and his Falling short of that is certainly providential. Back to Luther. As we have already said, they cannot endure to hear or to see what we accursed goyim should glory in the Messiah as our kemdath. And with this word kemdath, Luther is referencing Consolation. Christ is the consolation of Israel, there's no doubt, but that is not really what Haggai is referencing in Haggai chapter 2. We will see more of that shortly. We at Cursed Goyim should glory in the Messiah as Archandath, the Jews can't endure to hear or to see, and that we are as good as they are, or as they think they are. Therefore, dear Christian, be advised and do not doubt that next to the devil you have no bitter 
venomous and vehement foe than a real Jew who earnestly seeks to be a Jew. And of course, Luther is absolutely right here, except that his last clause leaves the door open for the possible conversion of Jews. When Jews are converted to Christianity, they take with them the belief that the Jews are God's chosen people, which is a lie. The Jews are the spawn of demons. The Jews are the converted Edomites and Canaanites of the Old Testament. Those who rejected Christ, Christ said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. According to Christ, in Luke chapter 20, 21, speaking of the destruction, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, that was the vengeance of God upon the enemies of God. According to Jeremiah, they were the bad figs. They weren't supposed to believe him. According to Paul, they were the accursed Edomites. They weren't supposed to believe him. They were supposed to be driven into all nations to be a taunt, a reproach, and a curse wherever they went. When one of them converts, he brings his lies with him and upholds the notion amongst Christians that they are Gentiles and that Jews are God's chosen people. So the conversion of a Jew is the maintenance of a lie. And Luther didn't understand that. There may perhaps be some among them who believes what a cow or goose believes, but their lineage and circumcision infect them all. And, and he's despising the Jews, but he's despising them for the wrong reasons, because he believes that their lineage is of Israel, and they're accursed for that reason, when in truth, their lineage, as Christ told them, is of the devil. And that's why they're accursed. Luther gets his arguments from the Old Testament and from Lyra and Bergensis. He should have gotten more of his arguments from the New Testament and perhaps come to the realization of the truth himself. Luther understood that the Jews were evil by their fruits. And here he seems to understand that a bad tree could not produce good fruit, yet he takes it for granted that their lineage is of Israel while leaving the door open to their possible conversion. All the mistakes of denominational Christianity today were around with Martin Luther. Luther's misunderstanding of the Jews seems to have caused in him a hopeless confusion. He says, therefore, the history books often accuse them of contaminating wells, of kidnapping and piercing children. As, for example, at Trent, Wysensy, etc. And his reference to Trent 
is a reference to the famous case of Jewish ritual murder and Simon of Trent, the young boy who was their victim. And his reference to Weissensee is a, is a reference to the murder of a young student named Conrad, the son of a knight who was killed by the Jews in Weissensee at Easter in 1303 A.D. And Luther says, they, of course, deny this. Whether it is true or not, I do know that they do not lack the complete, full, and ready will to do such things either secretly or openly where possible. So Luther doesn't directly uphold the fact that the Jews were conducting ritual murder against Christian children. But he says that they surely had the capacity for it. This you can assuredly expect from them, and you must govern yourself accordingly. If they do perform some good deed, you may rest assured that they are not prompted by love, nor is it done with your benefit in mind. Since they are compelled to live among us, they do this for reasons of expediency, but their heart remains and is as I have described it. If you do not want to believe me, read Lyra, Bergensis, and other truthful and honest men. There he goes again with Lyra and Bergensis, quoting the Converso Jews. Throughout this entire paper, Luther has not yet, except for the Bible, the Bible passages he quotes, which he very often takes out of context, Luther has not yet cited any sources but Jews in his answer to the Jews, or any sources which indicate any other origin for his interpretations of Scripture. Reading this paper, I would think, and I do think so far through seven sections of the, on the Jews and their lives, that the Jews were the teachers of Martin Luther and that he really didn't get his interpretations of Scripture from any other source. That's the impression that I'm left with so far. He goes on to say, and even if they had not recorded it, meaning if Lyra and Bergensis didn't write their commentaries, you would find that Scripture tells us of the two seeds, the serpents and the womans. It says that these are enemies, and that God and the devil are at a variance with each other. Their own writings and prayer books, meaning the Jews, also state this plainly enough. And, as we shall see below, Luther believed in the two seeds of Genesis and came very close to understanding it, but did not understand it completely because he only saw a plurality, a collective of seed on one side of the equation. A person who is unacquainted with the devil might wonder why they are so particularly hostile towards Christians. And, and this is amazing. Here Luther intends to reference a collective devil. 
the same way we should do today by referring to this devil as they. A person who is unacquainted with the devil might wonder why they are so particularly hostile towards Christians. They have, they have no reason to act this way since we show them every kindness. He's basically labeling the Jews as the devil. They live among us, enjoy our shield and protection. They use our country and our highways, our markets and our streets. Meanwhile, our princes and rulers sit there and snore with their mouths hanging open and permit the Jews to take, steal, and rob from their open money bags and treasures whatever they want. That is... They let the Jews, by means of their usury, skin and fleece them and their subjects and make them beggars with their own money. So Luther understood the financial treachery of the Jews and certainly understood the evils of usury. He stood against it. In Luther's time, at the Fifth Lateran Council, the de Medici Pope, forced usury upon the bishops of the Catholic Church, Catholic Church. He forced the acceptance of usury upon the bishops of the Catholic Church. Now, Luther wrote his 95 Theses, and he really wasn't outspoken against usury in his 95 Theses, that there were much greater evils that the church was committing, such as indulgences, and that's where he centered his opposition to the church. But he was clearly against usury. Most of the German reformers despised usury. Most of the American Protestants despised usury. It was um, Calvin, for one, who was um, accepting of usury, and in New England, it was Cotton Mather who, who um, labored quite hard to have the New England Protestants accept usury. So they were both basically turncoats for Satan. But the German reformers with Luther were against it, and rightly so. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote to, um, I think it was Margaret of Flanders, I could be wrong, in the 14th century. And he wrote to her and said that the Jews, and this quote's on Christogenia somewhere at the main site, the Jews should not be allowed to keep anything that they gained through usury. And here Luther explains why. He says, for the Jews who are exiles, should really have nothing, and whatever they have must surely be our property. They do not work, and they do not earn anything from us, nor do we give or present it to them. And yet, they are in possession of our money and goods, and are masters in our own country and in their exile. A thief is condemned to hang for the, te- for the theft of 10 
florins, which is probably like 10 cents, right? And if he robs anyone on the highway, he forfeits his head. But when a Jew steals and robs 10 tons of gold through his usury, he is more highly esteemed than God himself. And sadly, that situation, which Luther has described perfectly, has not changed in the Christian nations until this day. Usury is the biggest evil, and usury is the biggest evil in our society today because through usury, the Jews have gotten control over every Christian nation. Through usury, we have all of these idols that we worship, that the Jews have set up in our nations. Usury has empowered Satan to destroy Christendom. That is why, as Clifton Emmerheiser recently pointed out, the Valley of Achor is a door of hope. In the Valley of Achor, one of the sons of Israel sought a can, I believe his name is, sought the silver and gold from the destruction of the Canaanites and hid it in his tent along with a Babylonian garment. Imagine that. He wanted to be a banker. Back to Luther. In proof of this, we cite the bold boast which with which they strengthen their faith and give vent to their venomous hatred of us. As they say among themselves, be patient and see how God is with us and does not desert his people even in exile. We do not labor, yet we enjoy prosperity and leisure. The accursed goyim have to work for us, but we get their money. This makes us their masters and them our servants. Be patient, dear children of Israel. Better times are in store for us. And, and Luther uses that children of Israel term to, in, in the mouth of the Jews to refer to the Jews. Better times are in store for us. Our Messiah will still come if we continue thus and acquire the Kemdah, which Luther terms as the consolation found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. The kendat of all the Gentiles by usury and other methods. Alas, this is what we endure for them. They are under our shield and protection. That Luther is talking about the Jews now. Alas, this is what is, is this is what we endure for them. They are under our shield and protection. In other words, the Jews are in Christian nations, and they were. the Christian people. And yet, as I have said, they curse us, but we shall revert to this later. Now, not understanding who true Israel is, one cannot truly understand the nature of the dragon, the beast, or the identity of the devil and Satan with the evil prince of this world. And Luther missed the boat on all of this entirely. 
in spite of the fact that the apostles of Christ did make that same identification. I'm going to read from uh, so that we well, we're reminded of what Luther is talking about when he makes this reference to the word chemdath or chemdath. I'm going to read from Haggai chapter 2 from verse 6. For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith Yahweh of hosts. Now where it says um, in verse 7 in your King James Version, or in verse 8 in the Septuagint, where it says, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. That word is the Hebrew word, kendath. And in the Septuagint, It's translated in Greek ta eklekta, and that could mean the elect things. It can't mean the elect people, and that's because ta eklekta is neuter, and it's plural the elect things. Now, Brenton translated that as the choice portions. So in a Septuagint, we have a plural neuter noun. In the King James Version, it's the desire. And that's because evidently, in the Hebrew, the noun is singular and feminine. So when Luther says kemdath, the kemdath of all the Gentiles, he wants to interpret that kemdath to mean consolation and refer to Christ. I can't find any basis at all for that interpretation which Luther insists upon. We are now speaking about the fact that they cannot tolerate us as co-heirs in the kingdom of the Messiah, that he is our Kemdat, as the prophets abundantly attest. Now, the attestation is certainly made that Christ is the consolation of Israel. There's no doubt that's in the scripture. It's right in Luke chapter 2, and it's elsewhere in scripture. And it should be without doubt. But that's not what Haggai is referring to. Of course, um, Luther missed the point as to why 
the Jews can't really tolerate having us as co-heirs in the kingdom of the Messiah. And that's because the enmity of Genesis chapter 3 is a permanent enmity. Luther goes on to say, what does God say about this? He says that he will give the kendath to the Gentiles, and that their obedience shall be pleasing to him, as Jacob affirms in Genesis 49, together with all the prophets. And of course, by citing Genesis 49, Luther refers to Genesis 49.10, where after promising that the scepter and the lawgiver shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, Jacob said, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, that word people, in Genesis 49.10, is referring to the people of Israel in context. And that word people is a single noun, I believe. At least it's expressed that way in the translations which I've seen. The Septuagint has expectation of the nations. I'm sorry, it is a plural noun. However, in Deuteron- and I'm going to mention this again later, in Deuteronomy 32, the first time that the children of Israel are referred to as nations is out of the mouth of Moses. The consolation of Christ is for the nations of true Israel as the gospel attests. Luke chapter 2, we discussed this in our last segment at length. The first time in scripture that the tribes of Israel are called nations, plural, explicitly, is by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, where it says, and I'm not going to read the italicized word with, because that's when you see words with italics in the, in the King James Version, the King James translators are admitting, because those words are in italics, that they added the words, and that's not always necessary. No. Verse 43, Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people. And in the context of Deuteronomy 32, Moses can only be speaking about the tribes of Israel where he says that. Back to Luther. He says that he will oppose the obduracy of the Jews most strenuously, rejecting them and choosing and accepting the Gentiles, even though the later are not of the noble blood of the fathers or circumcised saints. There's no basis at all for that in Scripture. In fact, Scripture refutes that idea. Christ rejected the Judeans. The Judeans were not Israel. They were only a small portion of the people of Judah who race mixed 
with the Edomites pretending to be Judah. Luther is about to quote a passage from Hosea, which was intended only for the true nations of put-off, divorced Israel. And I'll read the rest of Luther's paragraph, where he says, For thus says Hosea 2.23, And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, thou art my God. But to the Jew, he says in Hosea 1.9, Call his name, not my people, lo ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Luther's trying to convince us that the words of Hosea 2.23 are for Gentiles and the words of Hosea 1.9 are for Jews. We will soon see that that is a blatant lie. It's a lie. Luther, this is, the, the, um, this is not the first time he's done it, but he's created a blatant lie. He goes on to say, Moses, too, had sung this long ago in his song, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21. And he says, They have stirred me to jealousy with what is no God. They have provoked me with their vain deeds. So I will stir them to jealousy with those who are no people. I will provoke them with a foolish nation. And he says, this verse has now been enforced for nearly 1,500 years. We foolish Gentiles who were not God's people are now God's people. And that's a lie. That drives the Jews to distraction and stupidity. And over this, they became not God's people, who were once his people and really should still be. And that phrase right there where Luther said, really should still be, displays Luther's confusion and his ignorance. Here is the entire basis for so-called replacement theology, which is an absolute perversion of the scriptures. If the providence of God has efficacy in the world, then those who were his people are still his people. As he said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. It is God that does the choosing and not man. Here Luther is virtually torn, Hosea 2.23, from its original context, and he applies it to Gentiles in the sense of non-Israelites. But that is not what Hosea intended. Therefore, we shall read from Hosea chapters 1 and 2. From Hosea chapter 1, speaking of the whore which Yahweh told Hosea to take for a wife, ostensibly because Israel, the wife of Yahweh, was also a whore. Yahweh was going to make an example and had Hosea take a whore for a wife. Verse 6, And she, meaning Hosea's whore wife, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by Yahweh their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. 
a reference to the destruction of the Assyrian army outside the gates of Jerusalem. So here we see in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, that it is Israel, the children of Israel, which did not have mercy, yet Judah did have mercy at this time, which is an important piece of the story to remember when we get to Hosea chapter 2, because Hosea chapter 1 sets the context for Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is writing in relation to the Assyrian invasions and captivities of Israel, which was happening at his very time. And then he says in verse 8, the word of Yahweh, Now when she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And this is a statement, a statement illustrating the status of the children of Israel in their alienation from Yahweh. Now, Luther, let's back up to this quote from Luther. And Luther says, Hosea 2.23, And I will say to not my people, you are my people. Hosea 2.23. And he shall say, thou art my God. But to the Jew, he says in Hosea 1.9, call his name not my people, lo, ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Well, that really wasn't said to Judah. It was said to Israel, and there's a difference that Luther refuses to see. Because on Judah, he would have mercy in Hosea's time. Israel were those without mercy, the Ruhamah. Back to Hosea, verse 10. Now, this is in response to verse 9. So we'll read verse 9 again. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass, now Luther conveniently omits this verse. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, unto Israel, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. Now, this was never said to non-Israelites, you are not my people, but only to alienated Israelites, the Israelites who were cast off from the presence of God. Luther ignores this. Then Luther goes to Hosea 2.23, takes it out of context, and abuses it by applying it to others which God did not intend. You cannot understand Hosea 2.23 without first understanding Hosea 1, 9, and 10. And we're going to read on. Verse 11, chapter 1. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, Hosea chapter 1 is all about 
the reconciliation of the cast-off people. But before I say that, let me say that Jezreel was the son of, what was the name of Hosea's first son by the whore? And it means God sows, and it's representative of the number of the children becoming as the sand of the sea after they were cast off from God. Great shall be the day of Jezreel, the time when God sows the house of Israel somewhere else, somewhere other than Palestine. Hosea chapter 2 is all about the reconciliation of the cast-off people. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, that means my people, and unto your sisters, Ruhama, that means mercied. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts. And this describes the divorce of Israel and the admonition to obedience, which leaves open the way for a future reconciliation. Verse 3, Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Just as it was also announced at this same time, because Amos and Hosea were writing and prophesying right around the same time, it was also announced in Amos 3.2 that Israel, the only family which God had known, was being punished for her iniquities. Verse 4 of Hosea 2. And I will not have mercy upon their, her children, for they be the children of whoredoms, for their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them. She that conceived them is done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me bread, my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths and she shall follow after her lovers but she shall not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them then shall she say I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better with me than now and this is a representation of true Israel returning to her first husband through Christ they're returning to Yahweh through Christ. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. Yahweh will not lose track of where Israel is, not even if they wanted it. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. 
and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. If you want to look for the other nations here, if you want to look for any reference at all to Gentiles in Hosea chapter 2, they are the people that Israel had sinned with. They're called Israel's lovers here. But they are not potential candidates for Christ. Hosea makes no mention of bringing Israel's lovers to Christ. And I will visit upon her the days of Baalim, where she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith Yahweh, the punishment of Israel for idolatry, worshiping the gods of the other nations. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Israel is the woman fled to the wilderness of Revelation chapter 12. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bali. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. Israel forsakes her idolatry in Christ, and in Christ Israel is promised peace from her enemies. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. This has nothing to do with betrothing Israel's lover. Yahweh is forcing the children of Israel into obedience. He will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth. He will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven. He will break the bow and the battle out of the earth. He will make them to lie down safely. He will betroth Israel unto him forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And now shall know Yahweh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, promised in the parables of Christ and in Revelation chapter 19 at his second advent. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, which means God sows. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Lo, Ruhamah, Hosea chapter 1. He will have mercy upon those put off, divorced children of Israel, of Hosea 1.6. This has nothing to do with Gentiles. It has everything to do 
with context. It's amazing how people can read these 600-page novels and understand every scene within the context that the writer places it and know what's going on and not forget the nature of the characters from chapter to chapter or what they did in the previous chapters or what covenants they made, what promises they made, what they intended to do, what their plans were. But when they read the Bible from verse to verse, they forget everything written before it. That's amazing. And they want to make their own context up for each verse. That's incredible. And it's more incredible that Martin Luther did it and made lies about Hosea 2.23. And I will sow her under me in the earth. Who? How about the number of the children that would be of the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured? In Hosea 1.10. And I will have mercy on her that had not obtained mercy. And who could that be? How about Loruhama, the children of Israel? In Hosea 1.6. That's context. We only find the Bible in context in Christian Israel identity. And I will say to them that we're not my people. Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. And these are the same people that he's speaking to, that he spoke to in Hosea 1.10. And Hosea 1.9, where it says, Then said God, Call his name Loami, for you, meaning Israel, are not my people. And then it says in Hosea 1.10 that it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, ye are the sons of the living God. Hosea 2.23 cannot be separated from Hosea 1.9 or 1.10 and does not refer to Gentiles. There's nothing here about Gentiles. There's everything here about Israel. And Luther insists that it means Gentiles. He's lying. All of Hosea is about the sending of Israel into punishment and the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh their God. There is no room in Hosea for Gentiles unless you imagine Yahweh discarding Israel and marrying her lovers. Martin Luther was not an honest expositor of Scripture, but was only upholding the old universalist Roman Catholic theology, which was based on the interpretations of the Jews, not the interpretations of the apostles. Back to Luther. But let us conclude our discussion of the saying of Haggai. We have convincing proof that the Messiah, the Gentiles, can doth, and that's certainly not what it's saying, appeared at the time when his temple was standing. And we have clearly demonstrated that the gospel attests that the Messiah is the consolation of Israel. And we may see that stated explicitly in Luke 225. 
but it's not what Haggai is saying. Haggai, the Messiah, is not the consolation of Gentiles. He is the consolation of the nations of Israel. Deuteronomy 32.43 Thus the ancients understood it, and the inane, flimsy glosses of the present-day Jews also testify to this, since they do not know how to deny it except by speaking of their own shame. For he who gives a hollow, meaningless, and irrelevant answer shows that he is defeated and condemns himself. It would have been better and less shameful if he had kept quiet rather than giving a pointless answer that disgraces him. And, of course, we don't really know what Luther is referring to there. Thus, Haggai 2.6 says, Once again, in a little while, will I shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all the Gentiles shall come. And the text is quoting the King James Version that may or may not be a fair translation of Luther's German. But the word translated as desire there in Haggai cannot refer to the Messiah. The noun is feminine in Hebrew. And in the Greek, it is a plural neuter substantive, a plural neuter noun. Luther says, this is how I, in the simplicity of my mind, understand these words. Since the beginning of the world, there has been enmity between the seed of the serpent and that of the woman, and, he, and there has always been conflict between them, sometimes more, sometimes less. Now, except that Luther, while he, he is nearly correct about the two seeds, and correctly identifies one of them collectively, except that Luther could not in his day fully identify the parties involved, or he may have identified them correctly. Martin Luther was almost to see line. If only he could have made the proper identification while he identified the seed of the serpent collectively, calling them they and them, which is proper. But lo, we shall see that he identified the seed of the woman as Christ alone. He goes on to say, For wherever the seed of the woman is or appears, he, evidently Martin Luther there is referring to the seed of the serpent, causes strife and discord. This, he says, it is gospel. I have not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword and disunity. Matthew 10:34. And here we're going to stop for a second and imagine, and, and perhaps he's referring to Christ where he says that wherever the seed of the woman is or appears, he causes strife and discord. And quoting Matthew 10:34. If that's the case, and it is. Christ did say, I've come not to bring peace on earth, but a sword. If that's the case, how does Luther insist that the Shiloh of Genesis 49.10 is Christ, and Shiloh means peace? So to me, that there is a definite conflict 
in Luther's interpretations of those two passages, because Christ, in his first advent, came not to bring peace. So Christ, in his first advent, cannot be the Shiloh of Genesis 49.10. Therefore, the scepter is somewhere still with the house of Judah, even if it's not apparent to us in this modern day and age. And it's not. He takes the armor from the strong man, fully armed, who had peace in his palace. Luke eleven twenty two. That's Luther's citation. The later cannot tolerate cannot tolerate this, and and here he must be referring to the um, seed of the serpent by the words the later. The later cannot tolerate this, and the strife is on. Angels contend against the devils in the air and man against man on earth, all on account of the woman's seed. To be sure, there, there is plenty of strife, war, and unrest in the world. Otherwise, too, but since it is not undertaken on account of this seed, it is an insignificant thing in God's eyes, for in this conflict, all the angels are involved. And Luther had a very Catholic conception, medieval Catholic conception of devils and angels. Since the advent of the seed or of the Messiah was close at hand, so here we see that Luther identifies the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 with the Messiah alone. Since the advent of this seed or of the Messiah was close at hand, Haggai says in a little, referring back again to Haggai 2.7, this means that until now, the strife has been confined solely to my people Israel. That is, restricted to a small area. And, and that's not necessarily true. Even the, um, the angels in the book of Daniel contended with the prince of Persia. The devil was ever intent upon devouring them, and he set all the surrounding kings upon them. For he was well aware that the promised seed was in the people of Israel, and the seed was, that was to despoil him. Therefore, he was always eager to harass them, and he instigated one disturbance, dissatisfaction, war, and strife after another. Well and good, now it will be but a little while, and I shall give him strife aplenty. I will initiate a struggle, and a good one at that not only in the narrow nook and corner among the people of Israel, but as far as heaven and earth extend, on a dry land and sea, that is, where it is wet and where it is dry, whether on the mainland or on the islands, at the sea or on the waters, where the human, wherever human beings dwell. Or, as he says, I will shake all the Gentiles, so that all the angels will contend with all the devils in heaven or in the air, and all men on earth will quarrel over the seed. Christ did not... Here are the words of Haggai from, King, from the King James Version, from verse 5, that Luther is referring to. According to the word that I covenanted 
with you, speaking to the children of Israel. When you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, so the spirit of Yahweh remains among the children of Israel. Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Yahweh of hosts. Christ did not fill the temple with glory at his first advent. Rather, he promised that the temple would be destroyed. And the temple of his time was actually the third temple and not Haggai's temple. And Luther himself recognizes that later in this part of his discourse. Neither is Christ the desire of all nations, since that word for desire in Hebrew in Haggai is a feminine noun, and there is no reason from the grammar to believe that it is an appellative or that it is a substantive referring to Christ. Only Luther imagines that it refers to Christ. Yet Christ refuted Luther by saying that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is not the desire of all nations, meaning non-Israelites. There's no scripture that says that. The Septuagint version of that passage in Haggai reads thus, according to Brent. I will shake all nations, and the choice portions of all the nations shall come, and I will fill this house, meaning the second temple, the temple of Haggai's time, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Yahweh Almighty. That second temple, as Josephus acknowledges, was leveled by Herod and rebuilt from the foundations. The Hebrew word rendered as desire in the King James Version was rendered in Greek as a plural neuter noun translated as choice portions by Brenton. It does not refer to the Messiah. Secondly, we see that Luther, like the denominational Christians of today, wrongly imagine Christ alone to be the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. Yet Paul of Tarsus testifies in Romans 9.7 and in Hebrews 11.18 that the seed of the promise would be called in Isaac, not in Christ, a reference to the children of Israel collectively, as he says in Romans 9.8 that the children of the promise, children, plural, the children of the promise are counted for the seed and not only one single child. Paul explained in Galatians that Christ was the mediator of the promise and that the heirs, where he again uses the plural in Galatians 3.29 and elsewhere, the heirs are the seed of Abraham according to the promise and heirs is plural. Again, Martin Luther is exhibiting the perversions of scripture perpetrated by the universalist Roman church, which transfers the receipt of the promises back to the God who gave them. That makes no sense at all. So that they may uphold a universalist theology. And all of this is contrary to scripture. 
There are two short essays written on this topic, which are found at Christogenia under the title, The Seed of Inheritance. There's a third essay entitled, Heirs of the Covenant. Luther says, For I shall send the Kendah to all Gentiles. They will love him and adhere to him. As Genesis 49 says, the Gentiles will gather about him. And that's not really fair because the word in Genesis 49.10 is am, which means people. And usually the word goy is nations. And usually in scripture, that word gentilis is translated from the word goyim, not from the word am. So there's a little sleight of hand there. And he says, and on the other hand, they will grow hostile to the devil, the old serpent, and defect from him. And that's not what Genesis chapter 3 says. That there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Not simply because they adhere to Christ. That enmity was extant in in Scripture. For 5,500 years before Christ, Luther can't see it because he cannot identify the appropriate parties. Then all will take its due course when the God and the Prince of the world grows wrathful, raves and rages because he is obliged to yield his kingdom, his house, his equipment, his worship, his power to the Kemdah and Shiloh, the woman's seed, referring only to Christ. Luther is right only if he pictured the God of this world to be the Jews. And that would fit everything that he said about the Jews, but he didn't quite make the correlation. And the woman's seed to be Israel collectively at the second advent of the Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. He seems to be very close to that, but does not express an understanding according to the New Testament. His understanding is based on sophistry and arguments that are based on prophecy, sophistic interpretations of prophecy and that. He says, anyone can read the histories and date back to the time of Christ and learn how first the Jews and Gentiles, then the heretics, finally Muhammad, and at present the Pope have raged and are still raging against the Lord and his Messiah, quoting Psalm 2. This is all true, but all of those entities were the agencies of the Jews. And he will understand the words of Haggai that speaks of the shaking of all the nations, etc. And there's no doubt there are many prophecies that on Yahweh's day of wrath, he will shake all the nations. And that is expressed often elsewhere in Scripture. However, it is not evident in the context of Haggai. Haggai referred to the second temple as the later house in comparison with Solomon's temple, which he called the former house, and today both houses are gone forever. Yahweh does not dwell in a house made with hands, as Paul of Tarsus reminds us 
and, and even as the revelation reminds us. The shaking of the nations in connection with Haggai is in connection with the second temple, and therefore it must describe something in the past. Luther says, there is not a corner in the world nor a spot in the sea where the gospel has not resounded and brought the kemdav. As Psalm 19, verses 3 and 4 declares, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And this sounds wonderful in the context but the context is Luther's, and, uh, I'm sorry, this sounds wonderful, but the context is Luther's alone and does not necessarily belong to David or to Haggai. The devil, he says, too, appeared promptly on the scene with murder by the hands of tyrants, with lies spoken by heretics, with all his devilish wiles and powers, which he still employs to impede and obstruct the course of the gospel. This is the strife in question. And I must say that the devil was always on the scene. Christ told the Jews that they were the devil. Luther, he, doesn't, he, he hasn't appeared to have gotten it yet in his arguments. The apostles follow Christ in that identification. And Luther is missing it because his own interpretations follow those of the Jews. And we will break here with Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, Part 7, which we will conclude next week and continue our discussion of these things, our discussion of what the seed of the woman is especially. And Luther protracts his arguments based on Haggai Chapter 2, so I'm certain we will have to continue to address that and hopefully put them to rest. Luther did great to um, recognize that the people known as the Jews were evil, treacherous bastards, and he observed that from their character, which is certainly a sign of the truth of the words of Christ, that we should know them by their fruits. It's um, unfortunate that Luther just didn't get that the Jews were not Israel, and that the Christian nations of Europe certainly were. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. We will be here next Friday with open lines please participate. And next Saturday, with Martin Luther on the Jews and their lives, part 14.